0: Rachel and I try and keep up with the science happening over on Twitter. And about a month ago, Science Twitter exploded with anger and disappointment about a recently published paper.
1: Yeah, Emma, I saw this one too. Um, The paper was published in Nature Communications, which is a really good science journal. And the title of the paper is Tracking Historical Changes in Trustworthiness Using Machine Learning Analyses of Facial Cues in Paintings. While it sounds like an interesting paper on the surface, there are many concerns about the findings in this paper, why this paper was published in the first place, and that this paper promotes the pseudoscience known as phrenology, something we'll delve into today.
0: The goal of this paper was to unpack how the concept of trustworthiness has changed over time. To do this, the researchers looked at curated art pieces from the National Portrait Gallery and the Web Gallery of Art. They developed an algorithm to generate trustworthiness from analyzing faces from the portraits, and specifically smile, eyebrows, and other aspects of the face. Beyond this, they also correlated trustworthiness with interpersonal trust and GDP, which is kind of the measure of uh, a country's success.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay, this is interesting, but how do they define trustworthiness? When I think of someone being trustworthy, I think of it more of like a character trait and not something that's necessarily quantifiable, especially based on facial expressions. Also, I can't believe I have to say this, but just because somebody might look trustworthy based off your cultural and societal standards, this means absolutely nothing. I mean, look at Ted Bundy, for instance. He was attractive, kind, charming, while all the same time being one of the nation's most prolific serial killers. I don't really understand what the authors are trying to accomplish here.
0: In the paper, they talk about history and how over time people have become more tolerant and that certain spatial characteristics like a smiling mouth and wider eyes are considered cues of trustworthiness. And to back this up, they cite several papers that looked at different cultures and facial expressions in those cultures and how that correlated with trustworthiness. And they were saying that in these cultures, they found that a smiling mouth and wider eyes were more trustworthy in these cultures.
1: They also mentioned that they're looking at art as cultural artifacts of what people were thinking about at the time, because they aim to uncover how trustworthiness has changed from the 1500s to 2000.
0: So you may be nodding your head along so far and thinking, well, this sounds interesting and potentially insightful. However, the sort of thinking underlying this paper is very close to the field of phrenology, which from a Google definition is the study of the head and face as a supposed indication of character and mental abilities.
1: Phrenology is considered a pseudoscience, but it began in 1796 by a German physician, Franz Joseph Gall. He argued that the brain was the organ of the mind, and that the size of certain areas of the brain, or skull, indicated the strength of these brain areas, since he couldn't actually, you know, you you can't reach out and touch someone's brain, he would measure people's skulls. Gall's inspiration for this idea came from an observation he made as a schoolboy in the classroom, He noticed that students with large, protruding eyes were better at memorization tasks, and thus he deduced that there must be an organ related to verbal memory behind those big eyes. From there, he expanded this idea of brain organs to other regions and connected those other regions with other behaviors and personality traits. Gall would measure the size of bumps on people's skulls and predict an individual's character from that. Some things he would predict were humor, affection, cautiousness, and wonder. And there are many other
0: traits that he also classified. Phrenology boomed in America in the 1820s. It was something that was built on coincidence. I kind of think of phrenology of how modern horoscopes work. In both horoscopes and some phrenological diagnoses, there's always a scrap of truth or coincidence that led the patient or reader to think, wow, this is so accurate and describes me. Besides the scrap of truth, Americans clung to phrenology because it promoted an ideal of perfection that could be reached. Gall promoted different exercises to build up certain areas of the brain. For the lower classes, this was attractive because it helped them feel like they could reach up into the higher classes by doing something proactive.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this idea that you had the power to change and sculpt your personality through these exercises, you can see how this would be really appealing to people, especially in America. An article in The Atlantic described phrenology as the toolbox to the American dream. In 1888, the Encyclopedia Britannica debunked phrenology, pointing to many coincidences that happened by chance, and how the phrenologists held on to these coincidences, but failed to explain the inconsistencies, or tried to rationalize them away. Also, how there is basically no research backing any of this up. I mean, how can you predict someone's character traits based on their brain shape?
0: (laughs) In the show notes, we have a link to some phrenology charts, so you can see just what kind of madness this was. There are charts for different ears and qualities associated with ear shape. There's charts for a reliable husband versus an unreliable husband. And even charts for a good kind of head shape and a bad kind of head shape. I guarantee you that
1: you've seen versions of this chart before. Um, When I looked at some of those links, it was kind of chilling to know that I've seen these schematics hundreds of times. Not hundreds, you know. I've seen these schematics a bunch of times, but I never really knew what it represented. One of the scary things about the study of phrenology was how it was used to justify racist practices and racism. In Gall's book, he shows examples of white and Native American heads and cites the differences in head shape leading to differences in mental capacity. This ultimately gave support to racist views against native americans the quote-unquote evidence from gall provided support to andrew jackson who justified his indian removal policies saying that indians couldn't survive in the midst of another superior race
0: even when you look at the phrenology pictures you can see how european faces are considered normal and asian african and indian faces don't fit in with what is considered normal it's really tragic and like it or not, there are echoes
1: of phrenology in our, so- in our society even today, even in the language that we speak. Ever heard the term highbrow and well-rounded? That comes from phrenology? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the term well-rounded in the context of phrenology, this would mean that none of your little personality bumps are, t- are sticking out too far and they're all even. <laughs> Phrenology was a really big deal in America. I mean, famous, well-respected individuals such as the writers Ralph Emerson, Walt Whitman, and Mark Twain were believers and even mentioned phrenology in some of their writings. There was even a scientific journal of phrenology. And not everything Gall touted was totally wrong.
0: True, many modern-day psychological beliefs align with his theories, including his idea that the brain is the center of cognition and emotions. And the brain was compartmentalized into different areas with specialized functions. Yes, we
1: obviously understand that there are parts of the brain for physiological functions like breathing, vision, and language. But even for emotions and personality, this could be true. And many people would point to the mysterious case of Phineas Gage to support this.
0: Phineas Gage was a railway worker. In 1848, who unfortunately was impaled by an iron bar, which passed straight through his skull. It entered under his cheekbone and exited through the top of his skull.
1: Miraculously, he lived through this injury, but after the accident, his personality changed. He was previously a gentle and responsible person, but afterwards he became violent, argumentative, and unreliable. While neuroscientists accredited the change to injury of his prefrontal cortex, phrenologists at the time insisted that he had suffered damage in the neighborhood of benevolence and front part of veneration.
0: While his ideas about compartmentalization may have had some truth to them, we cannot localize emotions and personality traits to specific regions, especially not just by measuring the surface of the skull.
1: Yeah, in fact, one of the articles Emma and I read pointed out that the skull size is not necessarily the brain size, like your brain is encased in the skull, but the size of them is not exactly the same, right? So it doesn't make sense that you would be measuring this outer compartment and saying that you can say things about the brain. Now that we have some background and context of phrenology, let's get back into the paper. We received a lot of tips and analyses on this paper from Science Twitter, there are plenty of discussions that we appreciated, and especially about the historical and art contexts, because those are not our fields.
0: Just a note, we're not going to delve deeply into how they developed this algorithm, but they did develop it based off of previous work. Interestingly, according to Twitter, this previous work has been called into question as well, so it's worth noting as we proceed. But we're also not computer scientists, so our knowledge of how this algorithm works is limited, and we acknowledge that. The
1: algorithm is the most important part of the paper, and they did train this algorithm on other databases that have been used for trustworthiness research, as well as testing their data on Google images of man or woman, because normally faces of women are associated with less aggression and more trustworthiness than men's. They saw that their algorithm performed well in both of those datasets.
0: One of the most important points to make about this paper is that there were no art historians listed as authors on the paper. This means that a paper about art history did not have experts of art history weighing in on how the study was conducted or how to interpret the results.
1: Conversations on Twitter really harped on this point because having an art historian on the paper would have avoided some of the other issues that the paper brings up. One large issue in terms of art history was that the two portrait galleries where the pictures came from were curated meaning that these galleries weren't just a collection of a bunch of random paintings that represented the 500 um, years the paper looked at. They were likely from a certain class of people and chosen for different art reasons. Furthermore, people that got their pictures painted from the 1500s to 2000 were likely very wealthy people who could afford the expense. This means that the paper is biased to looking at trustworthiness in the upper classes.
0: This isn't bad necessarily, but this paper makes it seem representative of attitudes and traditions from 1500 to 2000 from all people, not just wealthy people. The paper also doesn't account for art styles. If you remember from some of your history classes, the portraits painted of people varied over time. Before the Renaissance period, which happened between the 14th and 17th centuries, people getting their portrait done did not look at the portrait maker, but after the Renaissance, they started looking at the painter, and this could potentially bias the algorithm portraits
1: from these galleries were mainly european and did not include asian or african portraits there are so many confounding variables and correlations that are made towards the end of the paper they tested whether higher gdp was associated with trustworthiness their hypothesis was that as people become more trustworthy they can work together better which could drive up the gdp of a nation
0: while associations and correlations are interesting They are not causation, and they really only give us ideas of where we should direct our research. Granted, when researching history, it is difficult to perform quantitative research, and qualitative research is more accepted.
1: As scientists, quantitative measurements are bread and butter, so it can be hard for us to look at these sort of studies and think that there's much usable data to be gleaned from it. However, there's no way to look back in time and ask people about trustworthiness, so this is about as deep in the analysis as you can go.
0: We wanted to wrap up this podcast with the implications of this sort of research. We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that there was a lot of anger over this paper. Much of the concern was because this paper was published in a really strong scientific journal. The paper was peer-reviewed by experts in the field, but it promoted the ideas of phrenology, in this case that certain facial characteristics predict perceived behavior. That's a
1: good point, Emma, and important to talk about. In our culture, we want to call out individuals when they step way over the line in terms of racist practices, which we absolutely should. But while we vilify this one or few people, in this case the authors, we often completely ignore all the other people behind the scenes who didn't do anything to stop this or who actively promoted it. What about the editors? What about um, the people behind the scenes in, in this nature journal? I mean, they cited a lot of references from other works. There have been other papers published on these kinds of ideas, so it's not like... This one paper is just in a vacuum, right? Uh, But back to the implications of the work. The ideas in this paper are dangerous to promote because, as we mentioned earlier, phrenology was used to justify racism in the 1800s. And in the case of this study, if there aren't many African or Asian portraits in these galleries, trustworthiness could be based on European faces.
0: In another part of the paper, they did use their algorithm to look at selfies from different places in the world specifically Bangkok, Berlin, London, Moscow, New York, and Sao Paulo. And here they wanted to see if trustworthiness of faces correlated with geographical locations where interpersonal trust and cooperation were higher. However, the question they addressed in this part of the paper is completely separate from the portraits they analyzed, but the same algorithm was used. So it may seem in this case, well, they're considering faces from many different places, but their main point is all looking at European art and not African or Asian art.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that their algorithms seem to detect trustworthiness in different cultures for the selfie part of the paper, but the databases they trained the algorithm on were mostly European or American, with some Brazilian as well, but not African or Asian.
0: And if you think about it, judging someone's trustworthiness on a smile or set of the eyes could be really racially discriminating for some ancestral groups where they have more narrowly set eyes or are part of a culture that doesn't normally smile. This paper makes it seem like that means they are less trustworthy.
1: Another concern with this work is, what's the goal of this algorithm? I mean, how would you actually use or implement this in real life? At the airport? In traffic stops? In job interviews? The paper does indicate that more research needs to be done on this topic. However, the fact that a paper promoting soft phrenology was published in a good journal is frightening and a cause for concern for this field.